Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Russia's war in Ukraine has been met with confusion and disorientation on the left. So what is the Marxist position on war? How do you oppose imperialism without falling into the camp of the bourgeoisie of either side? In this talk, Fightback editor Marissa Olanik discusses Ukraine and how to oppose imperialist war. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming today. So I'm speaking today um, as a Marxist and as a member of Fight Back. And because this topic is very personal and emotional for a lot of people, I do want to say that I'm speaking as a Ukrainian Canadian today as well. Um, I'm sure that there are many people in the audience with a personal connection to Ukraine. Um, even if you're not Ukrainian yourself, you might have friends or coworkers uh, with family there. And the past couple of weeks have been um, awful and stressful and heartbreaking for a lot of people. Um, and even if you don't have a personal connection, um, a lot of people are just upset and unsettled and wondering what to do. You know, people want to help. You know, war is very disorienting. You know, there's often a lot of confusion and we've seen that. You know, most people fall in behind what the media and the state are saying. You know, we've seen a lot of support for NATO and for sanctions and military aid, and as if NATO can play the role of knight in shining armor here. We've seen people lionizing and mythologizing Zelensky and the Kyiv regime. Um, we've seen some on the left supporting Putin and Russia as some kind of anti-imperialist force. And on the other hand, there's been a turn towards nationalism and uh, Russophobia to the point of you know, escalating into uh, hate crimes against Russian businesses and community centers. And then there's been the pacifist camp um, appealing for de-escalation and diplomacy. But, you know, do any of these approaches help the situation? You know, would they lead to any kind of lasting peace? And I would argue no. I would argue that to properly understand the conflict in Ukraine and to therefore understand how to end it, um, we need a Marxist approach. And that's what we'll talk about today. And the first thing um, to understand is how we got here. So I could go uh, quite far back into the history of Ukraine and Russia, but since we have a limited amount of time, um, we should just start with the 90s and the fall of the Soviet Union. Now in 1991, uh, the USSR fell apart. Capitalism was restored in Russia and the other Soviet states. You know, there was a new capitalist class trying to establish itself in Russia um, and in the world. But uh, uh, the end of the planned economy in Russia and you know, the end of the planned economy and all the former Soviet states hit really hard. There was, um, you know, it was basically like, um, you know, these countries had just been through a war. You know, there was a huge, huge drop in life expectancy even um, and the economy was struggling. So for Western powers, in the USA, you know, this was a time of triumph. Um, it was the end of history and capitalism had apparently won. You know, NATO, uh, which had formed as a military alliance of capitalist countries against the Soviet bloc and the Warsaw Pact continued to exist, despite, you know, the Warsaw Pact coming to an end. 
But, you know, as uh, Bill Clinton promised Yeltsin, um, NATO was a purely defensive pact, and it would not encroach into Russia's uh, traditional sphere of influence, and it wouldn't pose a threat to Russia. But that promise didn't last long because then uh, in a few years, um, the Yugoslav wars broke out. Um, and despite the protests of Russia, uh, NATO engaged in bombing campaigns. And Western powers basically used the war to get a foothold in the region, um, which very much demonstrated Russia's weakness. And NATO did expand its membership over the years, uh, five times, in fact, absorbing more and more Eastern Bloc countries into the fold. So that, that's the first thing to understand is this general pattern of Western powers, Western imperialism expanding uh, at the expense of the interests of the Russian ruling class in the region. And of course, Ukraine would not be left out of these attempts to extend Western influence. All the big politi political conflicts in Ukraine over the past 20 years um, really have been about this, whether Ukraine would be subject to the imperialism of you know, Germany, the EU, and ultimately the US, or whether it would remain under the sway of Russian capitalism. So you basically had uh, different competing groups of oligarchs backing different politicians and coming under the pressures of different capitalist powers. You know, that's, you know, what the 2004 Orange Revolution really came down to. Uh, and that's what the 2014 uh, Euromaidan coup was about. And it's really important to understand 2014 and the aftermath to understand what's happening today. Now, NATO might not have troops on the ground in Ukraine, but um, what we're seeing now is ultimately a struggle between the interests of Western imperialism and the aspirations of Russian imperialism. And I think what happened um, in 2014 uh, really demonstrates that and helps to explain that. So uh, 2014, uh, then President Yanukovych uh, had promised to sign an agreement with the EU um, that will bring Ukraine closer to Europe economically. And then at the last minute, he switched tack and signed an economic agreement with Russia instead. Uh, and protests broke out over this and over the general corruption in the government. Um, and these protests were also partially driven by uh, the illusion that closer association with the EU would mean greater prosperity and less corruption. And th this is what the Euromaidan movement was. While there was genuine opposition uh, to corruption in this movement, um, when the issue is which imperialist the country was going to subject itself to, um, it really neither side is right. Um, the whole thing was reactionary and it did quickly come to be dominated by right-wing and far right-wing elements. And of course, Western powers took the opportunity to get actively involved as well. Like the Canadian embassy, for example, acted as a base of operations for protesters. John McCain came to speak to the Maidan protests and in the end, uh, Yanukovych ended up fleeing his post and a pro-Western government uh, that was eventually headed by Poroshenko came to power. Now, um, uh, Poroshenko, um, you know, uh, initially, you know, he, he didn't initially have this like anti-Russia position, um, but what he ended up doing is uh, he signed deals with the International Monetary Fund, which um, if you don't know what they do is they offer loans to governments on the condition of sweeping privatizations and austerity. And it's basically they destroy countries. Um, the period uh, 
And the period after the Euromaidan movement uh, actually saw the worst declining conditions for Ukrainians since the 90s. And Poroshenko's whole strategy then ended up being to lean on ultranationalism for support, including right, extreme right-wing and fascist groups, and to blame Russia for everything. And then this is also the time that Russia annexed uh, Crimea, because that's where Russia's fleet is based. Um, and that whole thing sparked any even further rightward swing in the Kyiv government. Uh, the, the Russian language, which is the first language of about a third of Ukrainians, uh, lost its official status in the regions where it had had that status. And communists and trade unionists were targeted and oppressed. In Odessa, uh, there was one um, kind of skirmish that ended with fascists locking trade unionists in a building and setting it on fire killing 42 people and uh, in, in injuring hundreds. Um, and it's in the midst of this that the separatist movements in Donetsk and Luhansk, um, which are provinces in the east of the country and majority Russian speaking, you know, this is when their separatist movements sprung up. And then when Ukraine tried to put down the separatist movements, they couldn't due to the popular support for separatism in the Donbass and uh, due to the fact that the army wasn't reliable and soldier, the soldiers didn't want to you know go and kill other Ukrainians which then meant that the government went and leaned even more on the fascist battalions integrating them into the national guard because you know they were fanatical and reliable and, um, the Minsk agreements were supposed to end the conflict um, and you know recognize autonomy for uh, the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, republics but the Kyiv government um, you know, basically ignore those and, and has been shelling the Donbass for the past eight years. Now, I think it's important to point out that Putin um, doesn't care about the people of the Donbass. You know, um, the leadership uh, in, in those republics now um, is entirely dependent on Russia. Um, you know, they might have had some like progressive elements in the separatist movement at one point, but uh, they have all been like overturned or killed by the Russian state. Um, yeah, as, as I've said, they've been bombarded for eight years and if Putin or the Russian state cared about them, you know, they could have intervened at literally any point before now. Um, so the independence of uh, the Donbass republics uh, is not what this conflict is actually about. So uh, anyway, um, moving on in time, Zelensky, the current president, was elected in 2019 on the basis of a vague anti-establishment, anti-corruption appeal. You know, he had this kind of outsider cachet because he wasn't a politician, he was an actor and comedian. Um, and his success was also based on the promise to uh, end the civil war and quit with the ultranationalism. You know, his opponents actually uh, accused him of being uh, a Russian puppet. But, you know, he's backed by the same set of oligarchs as the previous government. You know, his main backer, backer who um, owns the channel that played its shows, um, among owning other things, um, he was heavily associated with the Euromaidan movement and is one of the richest men in Ukraine and really just like a ruthless gangster all around. Um, and so Zelensky, uh, he did not keep his promises at all. He's continued to implement austerity um, you know, these IMF uh, austerity programs, continued the civil war, and kept up associations with fascist groups. 
So that's the second thing to understand that Ukraine is governed in the interests of you know, these oligarchs who are being pushed and pulled by imperial, imperialist powers um, and these, you know, these national and nationalist divisions to, to prop them up. Now, turning to Russia, um, you know, uh, Putin came to power about like 22 years ago, uh, taking over from the very unpopular Boris Yeltsin on the promise to reestablish Russia as a global power, to consolidate it as a capitalist power. You know, he was initially very popular and, and was very popular for a while, mostly thanks to high oil prices, uh, which were a boost to the Russian economy. Um, it made it seem like, oh, every, everything was, was going well. But as um, you know, the economy dwindled in Russia, so has Putin's appeal. You know, there have been an increasing number of protests against his government, and his government is relying more and more on outright state oppression. Um, and in fact, the most recent election, you know, this past fall is widely recognized to have been rigged to allow him to win, which wouldn't have been necessary in the past. So he has to, you know, kind of work to maintain his position now. And, you know, what's better for a boost in popularity than a war? And then coming back to the global context, you know, in recent years, the USA has shown signs of being overstretched and relatively weaker. Um, and there's been signs of divisions between Western powers. You know, the US and its allies, including Canada, they withdrew in disgrace from Afghanistan. In Syria, Russia was the one to throw its weight around and to control the situation rather than the USA. Um, so we have Western powers who are wavering in a more confident Russia looking to gain back the clout that it lost. And it was in the midst of all of this that the talks and negotiations around NATO expansion were taking place. You know, um, the general process that's been unfolding is one of the USA and its friends trying to strengthen their foothold in East, Eastern Europe versus Russia trying to reassert itself. You know, and Putin can't, uh, can't risk appearing weak. Now, Ukraine is still an important market for Russia. It's got the pipeline going uh, through it to sell gas to Europe. And of course, militarily, Russia would not want NATO at its doorstep or any more at its doorstep than it already is. Meanwhile, um, Biden didn't want to back down either. He doesn't want to look weak. Uh, but at the same time, he said, you know, the U.S. isn't going to send, isn't going to de defend Ukraine militarily. While at the same time, he was continuing to ramp up, you know, his belligerent language and not make any concessions on, on the question of NATO ex expansion. So, you know, given those those hands in the game, you know, what what do you think is going to happen? And that's how we wind up where we are today. So, you know, when Marxists ask, you know, what caused this war, we don't look at what world leaders say, you know, they're always going to paint themselves in the nicest possible light. We don't believe Putin's explanation, um, you know, that he's defending the Donbass and uh, denazifying Ukraine, he's not doing those things. And we don't believe the Western explanation either. We don't believe that they're altruistically interested in the dignity and independence of Ukraine. We look at the underlying forces. You know, this war didn't happen out of the blue. There's a process at work that brought us to this point, and that process is imperialism. So what is imperialism in the Marxist sense? No, it's not just invading other countries. It's an inherent result of the development of capitalism, you know, the highest stage of capitalism, as, as Lenin put it. 
And in the simplest terms, it's the monopoly stage of capitalism. And I'll explain what that means. So like when capitalism starts out, it's based on competition. You know, whoever produces the better product more efficiently gets the profits. That's the libertarian uh, ideal of capitalism. But capitalism does not remain in this state forever. You know, what, ha what happens when there's competition? Uh, one side wins. And the side that wins basically eats the smaller one and gets bigger and then becomes harder to compete with. So as this process of com competition plays out, there are fewer and fewer players on the field and those that are left are very powerful. And capital is concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, um, which I think we see very clearly today with the growth of monopolies. As this happens, you know, finance capital and the banks come to dominate over industrial capital or manufacturing. You know, with the drop in competition, there's less of an incentive to invest in um, and to innovate in the field of manufacturing. So more and more profits are generated through speculation as opposed to anything really productive. And the capitalists merge with, with the state. Um, they're tied to the state by a thousand threads of economic interests and personal relationships. And what happens when these monopolies get too big to extract satisfactory profits from their home markets is that they have to expand past national borders, you know, to control resources, to gain access to markets, to block competitors, uh, and to gain new fields for investment from which to extract profits. And it's because of this that the world gets divided up by imperialist powers, because capitalism necessitates it. You know, imperialism isn't a policy choice or an ideology. It's a material necessity for capitalism to survive. This definition comes from Lenin. And one thing to note um, is that you now this definition isn't meant to be taken formalistically or formulaically. Formalism is antithetical to Marxism. So like back in 1916, Lenin counted Tsarist Russia among the great imperialist powers, even though it was subservient to other imperialists and still had some feudal characteristics. Now, Canada is an imperialist country, even though it's heavily dependent on other imperialists. Imperialism isn't a checklist of characteristics. Um, it's how capitalism operates internationally at a certain point in its development. So anyway, in this way, the world gets divided up between the imperialist countries based on who's more powerful. But the thing is that balance of power doesn't stay the same forever. Capitalists ascend and decline on the world stage. When the division of the world no longer reflects the balance of power, imperialists will seek to redivide the world. And the way this happens is through war. You know, World War I is a classic example of this. Germany was an ascendant capitalist power and was challenging other imperialists for their spheres of influence. You know, wars are not fought over ideas or principles or international law. You know, they're fought over capitalist interests. And that is what we're seeing today. The war in Ukraine is a war over whether Ukraine is a vassal of Russia or of Europe and the USA. It's over who gets to profit off of privatizing the Ukrainian economy, who gets to exploit Ukrainian labor, who gets key military positions. And it's about depriving the other side of those things. So this is a war between Western powers and Russia and Ukraine is just the staging ground. And that's something that's not immediately apparent um, because NATO itself doesn't have troops on the ground, but the Kyiv government is itself a proxy. It's backed by Western interests which isn't to say that Ukrainians are not genuinely fighting to defend their homes, they are, um, but that's really one of the despicable things about this conflict 
is that uh, NATO countries are the ones who picked the fight and then they left Ukrainians to deal with the consequences. When you understand the underlying forces at work here, it becomes clear that there is no progressive side to this conflict. No, Putin is obviously reactionary. You know, the Russian state does not care about Donetsk and Luhansk. It just wants to use them as bargaining chip in negotiations with Europe. To justify the invasion, Putin said that the objective was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. But the idea that the Russian state is in any way anti-fascist is frankly laughable. Um, the Russian government is a right-wing regime. It suppresses workers' rights and democratic rights. When Putin first came to power, he was supported by the Russian capitalists because uh, they were afraid uh, that the Communist Party was getting too popular and they needed someone to represent them. That's who Putin represents, is, is the Russian capitalist class. And P Putin looks to Tsarism for inspiration and he leans on Russian nationalism uh, for his popularity. And the invasion is not going to help get rid of fascist battalions in Ukraine. You know, coming in as a foreign invader, claiming that Ukraine is a made-up country and belongs to Russia um, is exactly the type of thing that provides fuel for the right wing. And those who aren't pushed to the right towards Ukrainian nationalism will be pushed to the right towards Russian chauvinism. You know, so this Im invasion is being carried out in the interests of the Russian ruling class and no one else's. The side of NATO you know, isn't any better. You know, the USA remains the greatest source of reaction and oppression in the world. You know, NATO, NATO is a murderous alliance that has destroyed one country after another, you know, from the devastating bombing uh, in the Yugoslav wars to the utter failure of the war in Afghanistan to throwing uh, Libya into civil war. Uh, NATO powers, Canada included, have blood on their hands. And then th there's the hypocrisy. You know, they talk about democracy and international law. You know, what did democracy matter when the West was backing Bangua, uh, Guaido's attempted coup in Venezuela. You know, what did international law matter when the USA invaded Iraq? The irony is that their hypocrisy really laid down the blueprint for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, with all the talk of peacekeepers and defending the rights of Russian speakers. Now, NATO countries, the EU, the USA, Canada, they don't care about Ukrainians. They didn't care when they were pushing for IMF austerity policies. They didn't care when you know, they were arming and training Nazis in Ukraine, which is what the Canadian army did and what the Canadian army is still doing. Uh, the talk among top figures in the US and uh, now in, in the Washington Post is now about turning Ukraine into another Afghanistan for Russia. You know, dragging out the conflict for eight to 10 years so that Russia gets bogged down and worn out. You know, they're developing these fascist battalions the same way they developed the Taliban. That's, that's the scenario that they're rooting for, is to destroy Ukraine for the sake of un undermining Russia. So no, they don't care about Ukrainians. And I do have to point out that we don't support the Kyiv government either. It is a proxy for Western powers backed by gangsters, leaning on fas fascist elements that has been conducting a one-sided civil war for eight years. Many Ukrainians justifiably hate this government. So while Ukrainians will obviously want to defend their homes from invasion, we don't create illusions in Zelensky or his government, and we don't act like their interests are the same as the interests of Ukrainians generally. So whichever way you cut it, the outcome of this conflict is reactionary. 
You know, the outcome is dead Ukrainians and Russian workers, um, a devastated country, a population that will be more divided than ever, and that will be dominated by one or the other imperialist power. You know, that is the outcome of capitalism. Capitalism means conflict and misery. And capitalism does not provide a way out of this mess. So, you know, then what do we do? Do we just accept this? Are we neutral because all sides are bad? No, uh, Marxists have a position. We take a side. We are anti-imperialist. We take the side of the working class. And in practice, what that looks like uh, aiming our fire at our own ruling class, recognizing that the enemy is at home. So why is that and what does that mean? So um, I'm going to contrast the Marxist approach to other approaches that we've seen. Um, you know, the main response to the war so far in general has been to support our government and call for more intervention. You know, this has been the way most of the general public has reacted as well as much of uh, organized labor and the left, which is not surprising in the first instance, war tends to shock the population into standing behind its government. But when we, when we criticize NATO or sanctions, you know, a common response is, but we have to do something at least our governments are doing something and Putin has to be stopped. And this is exactly the same as going to a burning building with a bucket full of gasoline to pour in the flames because at least that's doing something. You know, at least it's a liquid. Um, so what can Ottawa or other Western governments do? You know, there, uh, there have been calls to implement a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which means shooting down Russian planes that enter Ukrainian airspace which means a dramatic escalation in the conflict and direct war between Russia and NATO as opposed to proxy war. And I think we should all understand why that's undesirable. You know, there's been uh, the provision of lethal aid to Ukraine and the Ukrainian army. And I keep seeing fundraisers put on to raise money uh, from average people, you know, fundraising for the Ukrainian army. And again, this means arms and resources going to Nazi battalions, but that are in integrated um, with the, the Ukrainian armed forces, you know, for the sake of drawing out the conflict as much as possible, rather than br bringing it to a quick end. Then there's sanctions. You know, you see a lot of people talking about sanctions like they're this powerful weapon against Russia. We should be clear that sanctions have never affected a policy change. You know, they didn't work in Cuba or Venezuela. They didn't work in Iran. They haven't worked in Russia for the past eight years. So why would they work now? The Russian ruling class knew sanctions were coming. They prepared for this. The only ones who suffer are the Russian people. Now, sometimes you hear the logic that sanctions are meant to turn the people against the government, you know, as if Putin's government, which again, rigged the last election and has been suppressing protests for years, cares about the Russian people. You know, usually what sanctions do is that they push people um, into a, a siege mentality. Um, and this plays into the hands of the go their government, um, who can then say, see, the whole world is against us, and we're your defenders. And again, it's average Russians, and actually average workers around the world who pay the price of sanctions. You know, these sanctions are affecting the world economy and contributing to inflation, and everyone's standard of living is taking a hit for it. And then along with sanctions uh, comes kind of, you know, the little cousin of sanctions, these ridiculous and useless boycotts. You know, like taking Russian vodka off the shelves, uh, barring Russian athletes from sports, which then uh, fans out into all these performative gestures of like renaming things, uh, refusing to play Russian music or read Russian literature, etc. 
And then this inspires people to turn against anything Russian and to harass Russian businesses and vandalize Russian community centers and churches. And this is a thing that has happened in, in British Columbia. You know, to call it by its name, you know, these are hate crimes. And they're the logical conclusion of the everything Russian bad approach. You know, the Russian people, Russian workers are not our enemy. Ukrainians and Russians have family and friends and connections on either side of the border. You know, the Russians getting arrested for protesting the war are the best friends Ukrainians have right now. Um, and these boycotts and sanctions only hurt them. And of course it bears repeating that we can't turn to NATO to help in this situation because again, NATO countries do not care about Ukrainians. NATO countries contributed to the escalation of this conflict. Now, um, uh, another response we've seen from some on the left has been pacifism, you know, calls for negotiations and a return to diplomacy, you know, appeals to the United Nations and international law, calling uh, for Canada to be a force for peace. And while this impulse towards pacifism is understandable, um, it's also entirely unrealistic. You know, calls for diplomacy and negotiation ring hollow when Putin isn't interested in peace. Or he is, he's interested in peace on Russia's terms, which means a totally demilitarized and subservient Ukraine. The idea that there can be a negotiated peace is a tacit acceptance of imperialism. You know, there's this common saying uh, from Clausewitz that war is politics by other means. And you can see that very clearly in uh, in Ukraine. The past couple of decades have been about who gets to dominate Ukraine. Um, and Russia's invasion didn't change that. It just brought military force into the equation. You know, war takes over when uh, diplomacy isn't getting the desired results. And diplomacy between imperialists is still imperialism. You know, we don't support uh, the solution of imperialist powers sitting around at a table to divide up Ukraine. Russia does not have a right to have Ukraine in its sphere of influence, nor does the West for that matter. But calling for negotiations um, has as its base the acceptance of the legitimacy of imperialist interests. So there's no just division of Ukraine between imperialist powers. And again, neither Russia nor NATO actually wants peace right now. Any appeals to international law um, are toothless. You know, the United Nations General Assembly you know, can vote for whatever it likes, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, how many times has the GA passed resolutions condemning uh, Israel's actions in Palestine? I don't know because it's been like a lot. It's been many times. Um, and of course, Russia and China um, both have a veto on the Security Council of the United Nations. So that's not gonna do anything either. Um, international law uh, is really simply the codification of power relations. When it's not that, it's just words on paper. Again, what did international law mean in Yugoslavia or Iraq? And the idea that Canada can be a force for peace is likewise misguided. It's buying our own press. You know, saying Canada is a force for peace is like saying tigers can be a force for veganism. You know, Canada has been one of the most hawkish of the Western powers on, on Ukraine. Uh, Canadian weapons manufacturers are looking to build plants there and get contracts. And I can't repeat enough, Canada has been arming and training Nazis in Ukraine. 
know, Canada is not a sweet little peacekeeper wringing its hands at all this nasty violence. Canada is a full participant in Western imperialism. And the fact is, even if there was a negotiated peace tomorrow and all the troops withdrew and Zelensky and Putin shook hands, all the conditions that led to this war would still exist. Capitalism is becoming increasingly unstable. The old powers are not as unshakable as they once were. And regional powers will continue to challenge the main imperialists for spheres of influence. You know, wars are an inevitable part of capitalism. The problem with pacifism is that it ignores the interests of the ruling class. War suits them very well, you know, um, and it ignores the class struggle. It ignores the fact that the working class of any nation does not have the same interests as its ruling class. You know, our governments do not represent us. Wars are waged in the interests of capital. And the only way to effectively fight against capital is with the power of the working class. No, to end wars, we need to end capitalism. And that's why we say the enemy is at home. Our enemy is our own ruling class. You know, the main enemy of Russian workers is, is in Moscow. The main enemy of American workers is in Washington and on, on Wall Street. And ours is in Ottawa, in the provincial legislatures and on Bay Street. You know, because first of all, you know, that's the ruling class that workers in Canada are in a position to bring down, you know, with mass actions, strikes, expropriations, you know, we don't support the Russian state, um, but if we were to point at, you know, the Russian state as our main enemy, that would by necessity mean lining up behind and supporting our government against it. You know, when our governments um, and our capitalists are the ones who have undermined our quality of life with stagnant wages and, and cuts to things like healthcare and education, um, who break strikes, who use the police against workers and against oppressed groups, all while they make war overseas. You know, an, a war which we pay for, by the way. So this is a practical question. The Canadian uh, ruling class are the ones we can, can fight and bringing them, them down would benefit the struggle of workers around the world, wherever Canadian imperialism has extended its reach. You know, fight back is part of the international Marxist tendency. We have supporters around the world and our comrades in Russia are facing arrests, fines, and violence for attending and organizing protests against the war. We support them by opposing our capitalists. You know, we oppose sanctions, we oppose military intervention, and we oppose anything else that sets the working class of different nations against each other. Now, this is the Marxist approach to war. Um, it's a working class position. It's an internationalist position. And it does work. Um, it was revolution in Germany that ended World War I. It was you know, organized resistance in the US Army and unrest uh, at home that finally brought an end to the Vietnam War. And revolution, socialist revolution, uh, is the only thing that can end the conditions that create war by ending capitalism. You know, Lenin wrote, uh, our aim is to achieve a socialist system of society which by eliminating the division of mankind into classes, by eliminating all exploitation of man by man and nation by nation, will inevitably eliminate the very possibility of war. That's what we stand for. And you look around the left and not a lot of organizations have this position. Most unions have uncritically taken up the slogan to support Ukraine, which in the current context and without saying anything else means supporting whatever actions our government takes in the conflict. The NDP have come out strongly in favor of sanctions against Russia. 
you know, they all fall for the bourgeois line on the war rather than taking a working class perspective. The Marxist approach, the class-based approach is not a very popular one at the moment, but it is the correct position. However, being correct is not enough. You know, we need to fight for this approach on the left in the working class organizations. We need to build support for militant Marxist leadership instead of the right-wing leadership that currently exists. And that's what Fight Back is trying to build. You know, when people ask, you know, okay, you Marxists think you're so smart, what's your solution for the war in Ukraine? How do we end the war? You know, the answer is that in practical terms, there is no good outcome in Ukraine. Um, and that's because the working class around the world does not have the kind of militant class independent organization that it needs to have a significant impact. And that's the tragedy of it. But that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We need to build, you know, we need to get Marxist ideas out there. We need to win support for them in the movement. We need to build a revolutionary organization, one that is capable of taking a stand against imperialism, one that's capable of ending it. You know, we end war with revolution by replacing capitalism with true democracy, with workers' democracy, replacing a system that's based on producing for profit and based on competition with one that's based on producing for need and on cooperation, replacing capitalism with socialism. No. There will be more wars as long as capitalism exists. It's up to us to do the work now so that in the future, the working class will be capable of ending all wars once and for all. See, no war between peoples, no peace between classes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.